The problem is that many of us get trapped into asking the wrong questions. Okay. When you ask yourself, why am I so bad at this? Your right. brain is immediately going to give you answers as to why <laughs> you're so bad at this. And a lot of those are going to be ridiculous, by the way. But your brain's going to answer that question. If you actively or proactively flip the questions, right? right, ask better questions, your brain begins to answer those too. Hey, what have I learned from this? How can I grow stronger from this? What are some of the positives that happened? Oh, here's a great one that you talk about all the time. What can I be grateful for? Okay. Right. Your brain will start to answer those questions. You will feel immediately better. I am a true believer, both in, I guess, in practicality and experience of my own life, that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we consistently ask ourselves. So you want to know how high performers do it. And SEALs do this you know, pretty habitually, especially in combat. We shift the questions. So we're always asking the better question because we don't have time to waste with bad, disempowering questions. It's a conscious choice. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. And in this episode, a retired Navy SEAL commander is going to help you understand that getting through and managing fear, anxiety, and stress in a healthy way is 100% possible and a must when it comes to living your best life. Overcoming challenges and doing hard things in your life will help you grow stronger mentally, physically, and emotionally. It is also one of the best ways to develop true self-confidence. This is a must-listen for anyone looking to gain a deeper understanding of how to face your fears practically and effectively, build resiliency, and recover from setbacks quickly and efficiently. This is also for anyone who is looking to develop the attributes needed for optimal performance. In a world that is full of uncertainty, this episode will show you why you need to accept the unknown that life brings and control what you can. After doing so, you can effectively get through life's difficulties by using attributes such as perseverance, resiliency, and courage. The cool thing is the more you exercise these so-called attributes, the easier it is to use them. In doing this, it will lead you down a path filled with strength, fortitude, hope, and ultimately achieving optimal performance. Much of this is discussed in my guest Rich Tavini's new book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Rich was intimately involved in the world-renowned SEAL selection process, which whittles exceptional candidates down to a small group of the most elite, optimal performers. But Davini was often surprised by which recruits washed out and which succeeded. Someone could have all the right skills and still fail, while recruits he might have initially dismissed would prove to be top performers. The answer was in better understanding attributes. In his new book, The Attributes, Davini shows how to discover and develop our innate attributes for performing optimally and having long-term success. He is a retired Navy SEAL commander in a career spanning more than 20 years he completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. As the officer in charge of training for a specialized command, Davini spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. He led his small team to create the first ever mind gym, 
that helps special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high-stress ones. So we talk about Rich's tips for managing anxiety and how to become more resilient. We discuss courage and why it's so important for getting through hard times. Rich also provides advice on how to recharge in a way so that you can recover quickly and efficiently and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Rich Devinny to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, man. It's not every day you get to talk to somebody who was the commander of an elite SEAL team and spent, what, two decades in the community. You went on, I think, what, 13 deployments, 11 to Afghanistan, if I'm correct? Yes? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I lost count after a while, but that's a, that's a rough number. <laughs> and we're going to get into all things fear, stress management, how to embrace tough situations so you, that you can come out on the other side, anxiety, uncertainty, that sort of thing. And I know you're the guy to do it, but in order to kind of prove to my audience, if you will, in a way of why, and I, and I don't mean why that that you aren't qualified to do that as somebody who is in the SEAL community, but just as, and I think a lot of people, when they think of SEALs or people in that realm, it's like, oh, they're fearless. They never had issues, never had struggles. They just woke up one day, they put on the uniform and they could do a thousand pushups or whatever the case may be. But something that's incredibly inspiring from your story is that you as a kid, you're the guy who's scared of heights and then you become this commander in the SEAL community. How does that work? How does that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in a town in Connecticut and I defined myself as an average kid. I was an average athlete. I was an average student. I had a very nice upbringing. There was nothing, no trauma. And I think somewhere along the line, I started to test myself and prove myself. I, I grew up, I have a twin brother. We grew up wanting to be Navy pilots. And one of the reasons why we wanted to fly in the Navy is because the Navy guys landed their jets on ships. And that seemed like the hardest thing to do. <laughs> and, so, right. and so it was really in that pursuit that I discovered the SEAL teams and said, you know what, this is kind of hard. This is a challenge. I want to see if I can do this. And up till that point, I only know this because I'd autopsied my progression here in writing the book and prior to that, but I'd been throwing myself into discomfort and uncertainty the whole way through. I was not really an athlete by any means. I'm not athletic, really. I'm not really competitive, but I still threw myself into sports because I felt like it was a challenge. And those challenges and, and kind of being able to kind of do those challenges and then succeed. And I ended up being the captain of my lacrosse team as the guy who wasn't really a, a great athlete. And so being able to do those challenges and succeed really helped me say to myself, I'm going to, I think I want to try this. And so I went to SEAL training in mid-90s, so around 96, went to SEAL training, expecting to be surrounded by superheroes. And I will say that I felt like I was. I really I felt like I was around people who were all way better than me. But what's interesting about the guys I was around is they thought kind of the same thing <laughs> about themselves. You know, So what I realized was a bunch of, of dudes who who on many levels felt like, you know what, I'm just someone who wants to try to do this. I can throw myself into uncertainty. I can get uncomfortable. I can get comfortable in that environment and I can succeed. And so, so this idea of fearlessness is actually a myth and maybe it's a good myth for our enemies to believe, but I think Navy SEALs, I think spec ops guys, I think military folks, I think firemen, I think anybody who risks themselves and serves, I think true superpower is that we learn and they learn to push through fear. And, and still push on. I was, the idea of fearlessness always scares me. I was encouraged, given some advice as a young officer, be, beware the fearless leader. And I know we're going to talk about fear. Beware the fearless leader because, because he'll likely get you killed, right? 
fear is by design, right? It's, it's supposed to make us think twice. And so I think pushing through that became a valuable exercise and became habitual for me. So jumping out of airplanes became something that I just did. And I, I got a little bit easier. There is such a thing as stress inoculation, which we can, we can get into as well. But the ability to see something that is uncomfortable, see something that's uncertain and move towards it became something that I, I did more habitually and, and continue to do in, in writing this book and, and speaking and things like that. And I think it's a really important message for people to hear when they're listening to this, no matter what walk of life um, they're on, that just because you're not where you want to be right now doesn't mean you won't get there. And you never know where you will end up 10, 15, 20 years from now. You could be that person that is as unathletic as they come, as uncoordinated, as anxious, as fearful, and whatever the case may be, and be that person who helps change the world in 20 years. You could become yeah. somebody in the special operations community. You could be a scientist. You could be a highly sought after attorney, whatever the case may be. And I think so many people get caught up in this state of fear and it paralyzes them. And in my understanding, in my opinion, like fear is there and fear is created in even reading your book and learning from Dr. Huberman that fear is generated in the brain. And I think from my understanding after that, it's a, it encourages you to take action, right? It's either right. going to have you go in a way that's positive, negative, you're going to go in the fight, flight, or freeze. And your brain and your body, you decide how to do that based on, I guess, your wiring and your patterns and your habits. And I know one of the things that you talk about in your book that I want to bring up just because it, it just seems very parallel to what we're discussing right now is this notion of courage, which I, I know mm -hmm. is one of your the main attributes that you talk about and something that I think everybody who's overcoming adversity kind of needs to have that one. So talk a bit about the courage attribute. One of the yeah. things I found fascinating is that it can't, there has to be fear there in order for courage to happen and to get that dopamine response you talk about fear has to be there. So walk people through what that whole notion of courage means and how it can really help people get through hard times. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the most fun chapters to write, I would say. I, I think to do that, we need to first examine what fear is, right? And and fear is really the combination of uncertainty and anxiety. So when you have, when both exist, fear then exists, right? So, so we can kind of break this down a little bit. You can be anxious, but not uncertain. Okay, say you or me, we're going to work, we have a presentation to give on Monday to a mercurial boss, right? We're anxious, right. but we're not uncertain, okay? There's no fear there, right? We can be uncertain, but not anxious. Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve, okay? When you begin to combine the two, that's when fear starts to show up. And it's because our brains are constantly trying to figure out our environments. And, and when we can't figure out our environment, when the environment becomes uncertain and we, we pile on anxiety, fear starts to show up. What's very interesting about fear, and I know Andrew Huberman talked about, talks about this quite a bit and what he studies in his lab, is that, is that there are switches in the brain that cause us when in fear states to either freeze or flee, right? The, well, I shouldn't say that, to fight or flee, right? The freeze uh, response is actually, a, is actually an oscillation between the two. So you're either going to fight or flee. And by fight, it means really, it doesn't mean put up your dukes and, and, and start throwing punches. It means move into it, move towards it. And then of course, flee means move away. Both designed for action, okay? Because as human beings, as we evolved, sometimes we needed to fight. And then sometimes we needed to run away. <laughs> okay, so, so it was designed by evolution. What's been discovered and what's so fascinating is that when you choose either one of those, it flips a separate switch in the brain. When you choose to fight, step into your fear, you actually get a 
uh, dopamine response, the neurotransmitter dopamine, one of the most powerful chemicals on the planet, makes us feel, tells us we're doing good, makes us feel good, okay? Tells us, yes, this is good, keep going. Uh, this was by design because as humans evolving, we needed to step into things, we step into the unknown. I mean, I, I describe in the book, the, the explorers who are the cave folks who had to go find new shelter, new food because their resources had run dry. They had to step into their fear to survive, right? So, so nature had to give us a way to reward ourselves. And, and it's not just about reaching the ultimate goal. It's every time we take a step, right? So every time we're moving in the direction of our fear, we're getting that dopamine re response. Well, what's interesting about that is that can be leveraged. And, and I think all, anybody who, and every human has experienced this to some level, because every human at some level has stepped into their fear, you feel good after you've done it. You really do. That's the dopamine. And so courage is quite literally the decision to step into fear. It's hitting that switch and getting that dopamine response. Courage as an attribute can be kind of uh, broken down per individual in terms of how, how quickly our autonomic uh, system nervous system fires off. So some people are, are pretty anxious. They're pretty, they're pretty nervous, they're kind of nervous Nellies, right? It doesn't take a lot to get them afraid. You know, so I would, I would relate to this kind of to, to boiling point, right? If, if boiling point's 212, a lot of us are set around 212, right? At, at about 212, we, our, our fear switch kicks in. We start getting, feeling afraid. Well, some people, they're, 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 they're set to maybe 190. They, they get afraid pretty, pretty fast. Other people are set to like what are, I mean two thirty like Alex Honnold you know, the, the the free solo guy yeah. he has a he has a high a high setting on his on his fear setting right and so so where we fall on that on that uh, scale speaks to how easily or more or or how difficult it is to step into that fear and so again the good news is wherever you fall on the scale you can develop it if you do get afraid faster. Just know that if you if you decide to step into that more often, you will get better at it. You will you will actually, and some people get get addicted to that. I mean, the the uh, extreme sports folks that 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 crew they're always pushing their boundaries. Well, they they enjoy that dopamine hit, but they do because they're stepping into their fear. So uh, so I think courage as an attribute is a very interesting one, and we can we can leverage it, and it's designed to get us moving, designed to make us do things to well originally to make us survive, but we can we can actually add anything we want to that. So that's what's so fascinating to me. A hundred percent. And I've noticed even in my own experience or just people that I'm close to when they get extremely fearful or anxious or in, uncertain, whether it's times like we're in today or just any other points in their life, when they just focus on the things they can't control, it seems to make everything worse, right? Because mm -hmm. then the uncertain, you're pretty much, you're, you're focusing on things that you have no control over at all and you just keep going down this downward spiral on these fears and you don't know what's going to happen and you have no control so it makes everything much more incredibly challenging and then if we have no awareness or control over our body itself when we're going through anxiety and these physical sensations it can spiral that down even further to a full-out panic attack or making us want to to run and flee when there's no danger, right? Mm -hmm. I yep. think we're, we're trained to run and flee when there is danger. Maybe you're in a war zone or maybe you're being shot at or whatever the case may be in something that's like a real life instance. But many cases, people are trying to flee and run away when there's nothing wrong. They just haven't learned to manage their their own feelings and their anxiety. Is there anything that you found, like a few things people can do to maybe take that degree so maybe if somebody's at like a uh, 150 degrees where they're getting fearful extremely quick 
to maybe get up until, I mean, not to like where Alex Honnold's point. I mean, that's very, I mean, he's very rare, but getting to a point where you're, you're, you're kind of living your life and you're not getting as anxious or as fearful as easily as, you know, you normally would. Yeah, it's a great point. And you actually hit upon one key factor and that is what, focusing on what you can't control. So if you reverse that philosophy and focus right. on what you can control, this is actually the secret to high performers. And I think you know this too. I and mean, if you if you walk back why why and how you were successful, especially in the darkest times, you basically chose what you could control and you focus on that. There's a reason why this happens. Our brains are designed to process the world along kind of three different axes, if, if you will. Duration, in terms of how long is this going to last? Pathway, what's my, what's my, what's my uh, route uh, through this? And then outcome, what's the final outcome? If we are absent one or more of those things, that's when anxiety and stress and then sometimes fear starts to show up. If you're absent one, that's probably general kind of mild anxiety. So, say, for example, you're in a situation where, all right, the outcome, the pathway, but you don't know how long. Maybe a hard marathon. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Maybe a little bit of stress there. Now, uh, if, maybe you're at, if you're absent two, it's a little bit more. So now, okay, you know the outcome, but you don't know how long it's going to be and you don't know the route out. Okay. Then more stress, right? If all three are absent, you're kind of, that's when fear really starts to kick in. A couple of the ways we can do this physiologically is to understand that we can take control of our autonomic nervous system through our breath and through our vision. There, there are different tools, and I know probably Huberman's talked about a few of those, but, but just for example, what's called CO2 blowout breathing, the ability to kind of blow out your CO2. So that would be in a breathing exercise that would look like, I'm going to take four breaths, or I'm going to, I'm going to count to four as I breathe in, I'm going to hold for four, and I'm going to breathe out for eight. And then at the bottom, I'm going to hold for eight, right? So you're basically blowing out CO2. That's, a, that's one way to do it. That's actually a way to start shifting us into a parasympathetic response. The other way is vision. So panoramic vision or, or what was known as uh, open gaze. If you were to sit down and look forward and instead of focusing directly on what you're staring at, start noticing your periphery. That type of open gaze starts to shift you. Those types of shifts begin to help you begin to get a little more logical hold of your brain and your systems. And then it's about controlling what you can control. And the SEALs, they call it three, control your three-foot world, right? And what that really means is, okay, how can I best in this moment understand and figure out what I can control and move to that, okay? So effectively, you're taking control of duration, path, and outcome. And in doing so, giving yourself rewards because of it. So I'll give you an example of SEAL training. In SEAL training, we have Hell Week, right? And that's kind of infamous five days, two hours or three hours of sleep, right? freezing cold, running with boats on your heads for hours and hours and hours. And I can remember in my hell week running with a boat on my head. I, I was at a point where I, I didn't know how long we had been running. It was middle of the night somewhere. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just horrible, right? And again, this is kind of as you think back, what, what was happening was I was starting to lose cognizance of duration, path, and outcome. And I remember quite viscerally saying to myself, okay, I'm going to focus on the end of that berm up there. We always running on the beaches in, in Southern California. So there are berms, big berms everywhere. I'm going to focus on the end of that berm. Well, what I did at that moment was I took control of those three things. I took control of duration from, from now till I reach the end of the berm, pathway from here to end of berm, and outcome end of berm. As soon as I hit that end of berm, I was given a dopamine response and allowed me to kind of pick what next to focus on. Okay. So talking about your three foot world and talking about moving through what you're fearful of, is it really about understanding, first of all, trying to control your physiology so that you can actually think logically. Because again, if you're in full bone fight or flight, you're not thinking your limbic has taken over. <laughs> right. So, right. but first using some physiological tools to start thinking and then saying, okay, what can I control? 
and taking control and moving towards it. And as soon as you move towards it, doing it again and then doing it again. And that's really one of the ways that any human being can step through fear and understand that for each human being, depending on the situation, depending on the context, that movement is contextual. It could be, for me, it was, say, end of berm. So let's say that's 200 yards away. It could have also been me in the surf zone freezing my butt off, right? And it's like, okay, I'm just going to think about the next 10 seconds. Okay. Everybody who you talk to, who I've heard, I would imagine the same for you, who's been through trauma of some sort, talks about doing this. And they just don't understand that they're doing it probably. But the patients who go through chemo, when, when you talk about someone who survived cancer and they talk about chemo, they, they will almost always tell you, those days I was doing chemo, I, all I wanted to do is get through like moment by moment. Right. I just want to get through that treatment and then I was going to get to the evening and get to the. So it's really about chunking that out and taking control of your three court world. And that's really one of the best ways that any human being can begin to step into and then through their fear. And then, of course, recognize that dopamine reward as you do it. 100 percent. And I think you're right. Anytime somebody's going through any sort of trauma, pain. I mean, you hear this a lot in the recovery community from addiction, the whole notion of one day at a time, just do everything you possibly can for that day to stay away from the people, places, or things that were rotting your life, if you will. And yeah. just literally one day at a time, you, you make it through, to just focus on getting through today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You hope it's coming, but you don't know. Yep. Tomorrow comes and so on and so forth. And you're right. I think in all this stuff, when it comes to fear, you're obviously painting a picture in a more extreme context. I think in you know the SEAL community with going through hell week and everything. And then you related it back to surfing. And if you're kind of doing it for your first time, just kind of changing your focus and just focusing on getting through those first few seconds, I think it applies to the same. If you're going to ask, maybe you're going to ask a girl out for the first time in a grocery store. And instead of focusing on what her answer is going to be, just focus on what you're going to say yeah, or focus yeah. on your eye contact or focus on your posture. Not right. so much what the outcome is. Cause if you're pay paying attention to what the outcome is, which you can't control, yeah. right? You can't control whether she says yes or no. You can't control whether she's as a boyfriend or whatever the case may be, but you can control to a certain extent what you say, how yeah. you walk. Yep. You're going to look her in the face and you're going to ask her out. And then by that time, you have built up enough courage, if you will, to ask her. And I think at that point, even if she says no, you at least build up some resilience, right? I know we're going to talk about resilience and some confidence that you actually did the thing that you were scared of and fearful. Right. So the next That's time exactly this right. happens, you go through it and more confidence. You don't have to go through that overthinking mentality before you do it. You kind of like, yeah. all right, I know what the feeling looks like when she says, no, I've got that feeling of rejection. It really wasn't that bad. It hurt for a minute, but the cool thing is I'm able to develop some confidence to do something that I didn't think I could do. Right? Totally. And I would say that, you know, because sometimes that outcome is too far away, right? right? So you have to, you have to chunk it down. And I would say just instead of saying, and I kind of, I made this flip in my, in my, in the way I kind of articulated it a while ago, but instead of building up courage, you're really just exercising the courage muscle. You're not really building up courage as much as you're just making your courage muscle bigger because you're understanding how to do it consistently. And then you can apply it to everything. One of the things I love about your story, which is so compelling, but you talk about when you were starting to work out and you could only do one push-up, right? Well, that's another way to do it. I mean, even someone who's way out of shape, you hear about these, these guys who and gals who run marathons and they say, when I started this, I was 300 pounds or whatever. And I couldn't even I, it'd be out of breath going down to my mailbox. And what do they talk about? They say, well, one day I bought some running shoes. Right. And the next day I put on those running shoes and the next day I, I put on the running shoes and I walked to my mailbox. And then so you can make whatever size chunks you want, 
But every time you do, you're actually stepping into that uncertainty and that anxiety and you're building up, or excuse me, you're exercising that courage muscle, which is really, really powerful. And you do that often enough and it becomes habitual. You're right. And I appreciate the kind words. And one of the things that I've been saying even in the last few weeks is you have to work your non-physical muscles just as much, if not more, Oh yeah. Physical muscles. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Like, I mean, if you think about, you want to get a bigger bicep, you got to do more curls. If you want to be able to build a bigger chest, you got to bench more. If you want to be able to build stronger legs, you got to squat more on and on with examples in the physicality aspect. But the same thing goes for, if you want to have more courage, you got to be more courageous. If you Mm -hmm. want to develop more resilience, you got to practice being more resilient. You got to work those muscles. Same thing goes with empathy and forgiveness. I can go on and on with some of these different attributes. Yes. You talk about, in your book. And I want to get into attributes because I think sometimes people can get attributes and skills very confused, right? They think of them as the same thing. Yeah. I actually kind of did in a way because I was like, oh, attribute, skill, characteristic, maybe they're all kind of intertwined, but they're not. And in my understanding from reading your book, like you can learn new skills by taking a class, right? right? You can learn how to paint by taking an art class, but you don't become a better painter unless you go through an experience of painting over time where you build, you work your courage muscle, you become resilient. Maybe you don't work, maybe you don't paint a good painting every time. And, and so you keep getting back up through that painting experience to continue to work and want to work on a better painting. I'm just painting this, no pun intended, painting this picture <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. difference that there's a difference, right? I think there is, you know, yeah. attributes are built through experience. And I think skills are built through just in the short term, taking some sort of class. So kind of walk the audience through what the difference is in your context yeah. As somebody who was a commanding officer, you led a selection process for an elite group within the SEALs and about and how you use this, you built a selection process around attributes. So talk about the difference between that and skills. Yeah, it was really kind of an epiphany almost. And you're right, they get conflated all the time because, because true mastery is actually a combination of both skills and attributes. So I was in a situation where I was running a selection process. Again, it was very specialized command, which meant we were taking guys who were already experienced spec operators. And they were coming to our course and we were seeing if they could uh, make it through our course to be part of our, our command. And so we had folks who had been experienced and very successful SEALs for five, 10 years, and we were still getting about a 50% attrition rate. So 50% of the guys, we were, they weren't making it through. Wow. And we couldn't at the time articulate to them why in a very effective or productive way. That was one. And one of the reasons why we figured that out is because the leadership was saying, hey, why are these guys not making it through? I mean, everything on paper says that they're they're the right fit, right? And we couldn't come up with anything better than, well, they they couldn't shoot very well, right? (laughs) You know, and so what I did was I said to myself, okay, I I think we need to go back to the basics here and ask ourselves what we're looking for. And that's when I discovered this difference. So just for everybody who's going to level the bubble here, Skills are not inherent to our nature, okay? We learn them, okay? We learn them over throwing a ball, riding a bike, driving a car. Those are things we learn. We're not born with the ability to do those things, okay? They are, they direct our behavior in known situations. So here's how to throw a ball. Here's how to drive a bike. Here's how to drive a car. Here's how to ride a bike. Or in the SEAL case, here's how to shoot a gun. So they direct behavior. And as such, they're very easy to see, assess, measure, and test. You can see how well someone does any one of those things. And that's why they're usually preferred and focused on over attributes because they're very easy to see. So this is why a dream team sometimes fails because dream teams are set up with the best salesperson, the best graphics designer. You, we, get, we get all these resume points and we say, oh, we're just going to get the best people, right? Well, 
that's good when the situation is predictable and certain, okay? The problem is um, when the situation is unpredictable and things go south, which they always do, they never really go as planned, skills don't really apply. You can't really apply a skill to an unknown situation. What you have to do is you have to figure it out first. This is where attributes come in. Attributes are inherent to our nature, okay? So we are actually born with levels of patience, perseverance, adaptability, resilience. You can see that in small, small children. Now, we develop them over time, certainly, but we, we can see them early on. They attributes inform behavior. So they tell us how we're going to show up. So, so my level uh, of resilience or perseverance or my son's level of resilience, perseverance, and adaptability inform the way I learned how to ride a bike when I fell off 10 times doing it or when my son fell off. It informed the way we showed up to those things. And then because they're hidden in the background, they're hard to see. Are hard to measure. They are the most visceral in times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because again, when you can't apply a known skill, we start leaning on these things. So let's just all think about COVID-19 in 2020, because all of us actually got a crash course in our attributes through 2020, because we were all thrown into stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Most of us um, were thrown into a situation almost overnight where we had to stay home, work from home. If we had kids, teach our kids. In my case, I was helping my son with advanced algebra um, at home, right? Very few of us had skills with which we could apply to that immediately. <laughs> we were all leaning on our adaptability, our resilience. We all had to figure it out. And this is when attributes start to come to the fore. And so we began to look at attributes and saying to ourselves, okay, what are the attributes? What are the things that are, what are the qualities, the innate qualities that we are looking for in these guys in this selection that are going to make them what we need them to be because we can always train skills you know right. if someone has the right attributes and i always just train someone to shoot you and i could go out to range doug and i can teach you how to hit a bullseye within three hours right you could train and that's that it, shooting a gun is not that hard um you could train a monkey to do it you know but attributes on the other hand i can't train someone in adaptability you can't sit down and take a class here's how you become more adaptable or here's how you become more resilient so attributes can be developed the caveat is it has to be self-motivated, it has to be self-directed, and it has to take conscious choice to do it. Oftentimes, a conscious choice to throw oneself into challenge and uncertainty so that they may exercise the attribute they want to develop. So that's the idea. The final thing I'll, I'll add here is that, and the, another bit of good news, we all have all of the attributes. And I only talk about 25 in the book. There's obviously more. It's not an exhaustive list. But we all have all of them. It's just the difference in each of us is the levels to which we have them. So, for example, if I'm a level three on adaptability, you may be a level eight. You may be much highly adapting. It might be easier for you than it is for me. Okay. So the good news is we all we have all of them and we can de develop them if we want to. It just takes some, some effort and some diligence. Absolutely. And it just seems to me in the reading the book, like you said, we all have them. And I think you made a reference that they're all kind of like light switch dimmers, if you will. Yeah. And some of the dimmers are all the way up for certain people and some are in the middle, some are low, but we all have them. And it's on us, I guess, if you will, to, to work on that through experience, through time, through consciously, like you said, putting ourselves into tough situations. So would you say that in order to obtain and get better at these attributes it's vital for us to continue to put ourselves in stressful environments not say that everybody has to go and go into war but for us people for us to constantly be challenging ourselves to not be running away from our problems to continue to evolve as human beings Would you say that's all necessary to continue to develop these attributes we will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second but first wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor legion if you're anything like me, you only take the best of the best when it comes to supplements, and you're always looking for those that are also backed by science, 
use natural sweeteners, and fully transparent with their ingredients. This is why I love the products at Legion, which is also the number one all-natural sports supplement company in the world. I currently am enjoying their vanilla plant protein, which goes into a post-workout smoothie after I work out, or it acts as a quick snack while on the run or between clients and interviews. I think we can all agree that 2021 is a year that we need to make health a priority, which is also why I consistently take their Triumph multivitamin and immune support to ensure that I am doing everything I can to feel my best. So if you want to follow my lead and take the best supplements around that have free shipping and a hundred percent money back guarantee, go to buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug to get 20% off your first order. Again, it's buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug at checkout. Now back to the show. I, I would say it is the caveat is that stress and challenge and uncertainty are contextual, right? So right. Yeah, it doesn't have to be combat. It can be, like you said, you can start a conversation with a stranger. That might be, yeah. that might be enough. The, the idea is that whenever you're seeking to develop an attribute that you're lower on, it's going to cause you stress. <laughs> it of just course. does, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm naturally impatient and I'm trying to exercise my patience, it's going to be hard, right? So you're gonna throw yourself into, into stress and challenge just by exercising that. But we also have to recognize that not all of us need to have all of the attributes, right? It really depends on what you want, what you're doing. And if you really think you need to develop that, I mean, that's just empathy, for example. Just say, take SEALs, the attributes that make, might make a great SEAL. Empathy is certainly one of them, but empathy, you don't have to have a lot of empathy. Yeah, yeah. So it's not required. Certainly not as much as you might if you're looking at a team of nurses or right. or even police officers. I think police officers need way way more empathy uh, than maybe seals, right? So 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 just because you're low on one doesn't necessarily mean you have to develop it. It really depends on what you're looking to do and and asking yourself, okay, do I am I low and do I need to develop this? Resilience is always good to have. So if you're low, I would recommend doing it. Adaptability is always good to have. So some of the grit ones are really good to have. Some of the drive ones, maybe not as much. Some of the mental acuity ones, maybe not as much. And certainly leadership and team ability. I mean, you might not work on teams. You might not be in a position of leadership. So it's really up to you. So let's dive into the grit ones. Those are the ones that I probably wanted to go deeper on with you because I mean, we could spend all day talking about all these and they're all great for different things. And I, I mean, it opened up my eyes, even the team ability ones thinking about, like you said, like some teams are great on paper, but you wonder why they don't end up winning the championship. It's because their attributes didn't mesh. You had people that just didn't jive well, whatever the case may be. They had the skills were there, the attributes weren't. So let's kind of keep going down. I think courage from courage, you talk about, perseverance and what's the difference because we're going to get I want to get into resilience but what's the mm -hmm. difference between perseverance and resilience I'm sure they can kind of be mixed up in a way too yeah. I, I mean at least in my understanding no it's, it's a great question and I had and you read about Hank in the book and Hank and yeah. I actually had this discussion because he he asked the same question he's like I'm not sure if I'm understanding the difference and if I, and if, of course you know Hank's featured in both perseverance and resilience so and I would say this perseverance is more about the act of moving through a stress and ch uh, stress challenge oh, okay. and uncertainty and resilience is more about the act of rebounding afterwards. So, mm. so this is where, so perseverance, just to kind of, uh, you know, talk about that real quick. Perseverance is really a balance between tenacity, persistence, and fortitude. And people often conflate tenacity and persistence, but they're actually not the same thing. Persistence is I'm going to do something the same way over and over and over. I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep doing it. This is the stone cutter approach, right? You're not, right. you're hitting the stone, hundreds of times in the same place and eventually to crack, right? 
it is necessary sometimes in the stone cutter approach. Tenacity is actually different. Tenacity is I'm going to do something and if it doesn't work, I'm going to assess, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to try something else, try something else. So you can't have, you can't be singular on either of those things because it's not going to work. You have to actually have a balance between the two. And then fortitude is kind of that mental strength to, to make it through. If you have three, if I have all three of those factors, that is perseverance. You are, you have the ability to move through stress challenge in a certain, probably I would say in, in more shorter term, you start talking about the drive attributes, you start talking about longer term outcomes. Perseverance is what gets you through the tough workout, for example, whereas, whereas discipline is what gets you to lose, you know, 50 pounds and, right. and, and change your, change your entire body. Right. But then we get to resilience, which is really powerful. And resilience is, again, if we were to, if we were to plot our line, our, our lives on a piece of paper, just draw a line across the piece of paper and then just plot our lives and, the, and above the line are the highs and below the line are the lows. Our, all, all of our lives would look like a, a sine wave. I mean, that's what it is. And the ability to go from both, uh, from either a low or a high back to that baseline is our level, uh, speaks to our level of resilience. Can we get back to baseline? To be able to do that rapidly and efficiently shows and speaks to high levels of resilience. If you are unable to do that rapidly and efficiently, you may get caught because if you don't get all the way back to baseline, then you will slowly entropy. You'll, your baseline will get lower. And you have to be very careful about that. So in the book, I outlined a couple of techniques. I mean, one of the ones I love, that's a real simple one that one of our commanding officers used to talk to us about because his grandfather taught him was the two minute rule. And he'd say, my, grand, you know, my grandfather would used to say, hey, when, when anytime anything bad happens, okay, you have two minutes to wallow and feel sorry for yourself and really kind of kick the dirt, whatever it is. After two minutes, after 120 seconds, you come back to normal and you get, you get moving again. You start working. Same thing when anything good happens, right? If, any, if something really good happens, same thing. Take two minutes, celebrate, rest on your laurels a little bit, <laughs> you pat yourself on the back, then get back to baseline, get back to work, okay? That is a proactive way to start thinking about resilience in the short term because if we start thinking about that, say, and it could be, I mean, Doug, it could be really major things, but it also could just be traffic, a traffic jam that you get pissed off about or a, or a conversation at work that just didn't go the right way. If you take a, a moment and consciously say, okay, I'm just going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to do this, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now I'm done. I'm back to baseline. I'm moving on. You are practicing, you are exercising resilience, the, the ability to get back to that baseline. Yeah, and it's, I talk about this a lot and you hear a lot about this too, that what ends up happening is somebody has has some sort of bad experience like you'll use the traffic example and maybe somebody cut them off and that triggered them and they got all pissed off and then they come home and they drink a glass um like of, of vodka or whatever the case may be and then maybe they say something to their their wife or their husband whoever it is and then that spirals something and they have another drink another drink another drink and sure enough they drank every day for three four five days had a four or five day altercation with their spouse maybe their pr production has been hurt at work and their performance and they're like how, and they look back and like how did this happen and it yeah, all started yeah. with that little form of adversity that they couldn't manage in a healthy way right right and i think life's about it's a dance between balancing the ups and downs right because life's oh, never yeah. going to be static it's never you're never going to have a true baseline it's going to kind of go up and down yeah. if you will and, and nor do you want one right i mean right. People, <laughs> no. people strive for that but i always say this if you love roller coasters right how, it, many, yeah. how many people would love roller coasters would love to get on a roller coaster that only went up right, right? it would be no fun right i mean the, the spice of life are the ups and downs and the, the more you can capitalize on those ups and downs um, and you're right i think you if you don't recover effectively you fall into entropy which means your baseline gets 
based on it gets lower. If you do it effectively, you start getting into what you're passionate about and your podcast is about the adversity advantage, right? Where you begin to become anti-fragile. You, you begin to realize that actually stress, challenge, and uncertainty and moving through it effectively grows you. It makes you stronger, just like it does in the gym. I've ripped the muscles. I've given enough time to recover. I've reflected properly, and now I'm stronger because of it. That's what true resilience uh, starts speaking to if you're able to do it effectively. You're dead on with that. And I think when people have these bad moments or their bad days, I think, like you said, where people expect perfectionism and we expect baselines and we expect everything to be normal all the time. And then when things aren't normal, we have a bad day or a bad moment, there's some, there's some sense of shame that people attach to it. And they go down this pity party and get pessimistic mm -hmm. and feel sorry for themselves because they're like, why is this happening to me? Why is my life bad today? Why this? Why that? And then because they can't bounce out of that and just do the opposite, which would be, you know what, I'm accepting that this happened. It sucks for the moment. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to pivot? Am I going to pivot in a way where I'm going to make my life worse or am I going to make my life better? Yeah. Because like you said, if you continue to take the steps in the right direction, when you hit those moments of adversity, you start to create a new normal. So it's almost second nature when something like that happens that you're not reaching for the drink. You're not going to go down and start scrolling on social media for hours to check out, you're going to be like, all right, let me go grab a workout. Who can I call that can, you know, help me help talk me out of this? Who, what kind of music can I turn on that sort of thing? And so on the subject of resilience, I want to get into some of the common things that is done in the SEAL community, but the things that are done in the SEAL community as that can be relatable to anyone as far as building that high level of resilience so that when people are facing moments of setback, adversity, trial, that that muscle is worked to the point where when that stuff comes, they're able to navigate through that more efficiently. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to give you a, a pro tip here. And you actually touched upon it. I'm just going to kind of dive deeper into it. One of the ways I, I talk about this, whether I'm speaking or if I'm teaching a class or something, is what I do is I tell the audience, I say, okay, I'm going to pose a question to you. And I'm going to say, and when I pose this question, you're going to give you 30 seconds and you're going to write down as many things as you can think of, whatever pops in your brain, write down, okay? I can ask them any question. The question I usually use, use is, how could you double your income in the next six months, okay? Mm -hmm. 30 seconds, write down, doesn't matter how ridiculous, write down whatever comes into your head, all right? People write, they write for 30 seconds. Then I say after that, I say, okay, I don't care about the answers. All I care about is how many answers you wrote down, okay? And I'll usually get somewhere between, you know, get people three, four, five, six, seven, you know? And the reason why I do that is because it, it emphasizes a point, and it's a neurological one. We as human beings and our brains are question answering machines. That's what we do. That's the way we figure out the world around us. All this duration path, it's all about asking questions. Oftentimes, and most of the time, it's done unconsciously. Anytime that we consciously lodge a question into our frontal lobe, into our you know, logical mind, our brain will immediately begin to answer it. Okay? The problem is that many of us get trapped into asking the wrong questions. Okay? When you ask yourself, why am I so bad at this? Your right. brain is immediately going to give you answers as to why you're so bad at this. And a lot of those are going to be ridiculous, by the way. But your brain's going to answer that question. When you say, why does this always happen to me? Your brain is immediately going to give you answers, right? If you actively or proactively flip the questions, right? right. Ask better questions. Your brain begins to answer those too. Hey, what have I learned from this? How can I grow stronger from this? What are some of the positives that happened? Oh, here's a great one that you talk about all the time. What can I be grateful for? Okay. Right. These are things your brain will start to answer those questions immediately. They'll start to answer those questions and you will feel immediately better. I am a true believer, both in, I guess, in practicality and experience 
of my own life that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we consistently ask ourselves. All right. And if we take charge, so you want to, you want to know how, how high performers do it and seals do this, you know, pretty habitually, especially in combat, we shift the questions. We're always asking the better question because we don't have time to waste with our neurology. We want, we want to maximize our neurology here and we don't have time to waste with bad disempowering questions. We're always asking the better question and it's a conscious choice. And if you make the conscious choice, you will begin to effectively improve. And that's how you build the resiliency muscle because it's all about asking questions, kind of like you said. Yeah. And I appreciate the kind words and you're right. It's like, if we can flip that switch and ask ourselves better questions and not necessarily in a sense to well, how can I solve the problem? Because yeah, that's part of it. Like, okay, like if I'm in a, a sense, a moment of adversity and, and I'm having some problems, like what's the solution, not just the problem, because I do believe that there's people that spend 95% of the time on the problem and 5% on the solution, where if they did right. the opposite, they would move through these problems a lot more efficiently. Right. Yeah. But some of the better questions you're right are, well, what am I grateful for? Like my life is tough right now. There's a lot I can't do. What can I do? Yeah. Who am I grateful for? What do I have in my life? And and then you, like you said, neurologically, you switch your brain chemistry to now you're more in, in a state of positivity and you're optimistic. And not to say that what you're going through is necessarily quote unquote positive, but you're able to get through it more efficiently because mm -hmm. now your head's up. You got your eyes on the future and how things are going to look a few days from now, a few moments from now, instead of how bad your situation is yeah. in, well, current, also in keep real time, right? When, when we do that, we're also taking charge of our biochemistry because when we shift that mentality, when we go from angry, pissed off, depressed to grateful, hopeful, and in some cases joyous, but maybe that's too far, but to even just grateful, right? We are flooding. We're going from, from generating cortisol in our system to generating DHEA and oxytocin and yeah. acetylcholine, right? And these are very powerful, powerful chemicals. They're rebuilding chemicals. The difference between DHEA and cortisol, cortisol definitely necessary, stress response, a lot of us know about it, right? It, it floods our system when we are in survival mode. It also does some damage to our system. It's hard on our system, right? right. And so we need to be, so, so our bodies are, have been set up. So when we're in sympathetic kind of cortisol mode, it's, it, we're acting, we're, we're surviving. But then our, our bodies shift to parasympathetic where we start making DHEA. DHEA is the rebuilding chemical. We can literally shift our physiology and our biochemistry by just becoming more grateful and asking ourselves the right questions. Changing, this is where feelings matter. So people, sometimes we're, sometimes we're kind of awash with kind of, oh, feeling, feeling. Yeah. Feelings matter because feelings create chemicals. And if we can generate a different feeling based on the question we ask, we are literally taking charge positively of our, of our neurology, but also our biochemistry. Dude, dead on with that. And I think a lot of it comes down to our ability to be self-aware of what's going on around us, right? And then mm -hmm. be able to, like you said, ask the right questions when you're in these states. And I think in the SEAL community, it seems like your life can be decided in a matter of seconds. Like a matter right. of seconds can make a huge difference. So right. if you ha something bad happens and then you start asking yourself the wrong question, you spiral down, some really bad <laughs> things could happen. And, it, and it's true, I think, in everyday life too, Rich. I really do believe that. And maybe not to the, to the same extreme context as in combat. But if you think about if you have that bad moment, like I described a few moments ago, and you get in that car, the traffic jam, or somebody cuts you off or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, like because of that one traffic jam, you end up spiraling down in the, the pits of addiction from mm -hmm. drinking too much alcohol or, or your marriage falls apart because of something you said to your, to your wife. You end up cheating on whatever it is. You make a bad decision yeah. based on that one moment because 
the questions you asked yourself on like, why is this happening to me? I can't believe this happened to me. You didn't ask the right ones. What can I do about it? How can I make myself feel better in a healthy way? What am I grateful for? And then you're, you go down this huge, dark hole that you have a hard time getting out of. And I think one of the ways for people when they're in that hole to get out um, and you, is to set and achieve goals. And it doesn't have to be running a marathon, losing 100 pounds. could be simple. You're just doing the simple things that you should be doing for yourself every single day to make to help yourself feel better. I mean, there was a book, I don't remember, I think a SEAL wrote it or a guy in the Navy wrote about making your bed. And he yeah, wrote about uh, Admiral McCraven. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote and he wrote about the importance of making your bed every single yeah. day. And, and yeah. how if you get nothing else done, at least you can say you started your day by setting and achieving a goal. So talk yeah. a bit about the importance in your understanding of setting and achieving goals, what it does for your mind, how it can help somebody really come out of a hole. Yeah, well, first of all, it provides focus, right? And, right. and it, it kind of go, goes back to that question, what can I control right now? Mm. Okay. And that, sometimes that's the only question you can ask, by the way, right? <laughs> and, that, and, that's the, and that's a good one. But it all comes back to this, to this neurotransmitter, dopamine. That's what yeah. it all comes back to. I mean, addiction is formed because of dopamine, right? The addictive chemicals that we all engage in or some of us engage in or we find ourselves, whether it be drinking or eating or drugs or whatever, or smoking, it's because dopamine is being created, right? So those, those are addictive behaviors because of the dopamine. Well, well when we when we accomplish, when we set and accomplish goals, even small ones, those are dopamine hits we're giving ourselves, right? So we're in effect replacing the dopamine hits of, of addiction with these goals. Now, admittedly, the reason why it's so tough is because the dopamine um, response for addictive behaviors is very, very powerful. You're getting large hits of dopamine with that stuff. So the, the small goals aren't going to feel as satisfying sometimes as the addiction. So there's that, there's that kind of that self-discipline that you have to kind of overcome, that grit that you have to use. But just know every time you take a step, every time you take a step towards a goal even, you are getting a dopamine hit. So, so the, 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 the idea would be to ask yourself questions and generate a pathway that allows you to continually step through. And this is kind of what we talk about. If you, if you want to run a marathon and you, and you get out of breath going down to the mailbox, okay, well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get some shoes, right? And that's the, I'm going to reward myself for that. Now, you have to set these goals so that they mean something of value to you, right? I mean, if I, at this point in my life, if I said, hey, I need to start running again and I bought myself a pair of shoes, it may not give me the dopamine reward I need, right? <laughs> but because I've been running a lot, right? right. So it has, to be an, it, has to be, it has to be honest and authentic for you and you have to feel a sense of accomplishment doing it. And that often means stretching yourself a little bit, right? So maybe it's not just putting on your shoes. Maybe it's putting on those shoes and going outside and running to the end of the block or jogging, doing the best you can, right? So you just have to, you have to form those wickets in concert with how you feel and, and make sure it's authentic and honest so you actually feel it. And I guarantee you, you'll feel it if you, you go through that process. And that's powerful. A hundred percent. I don't know. I think it was Andrew who said this, uh, so don't quote me on this, but... I think he talks about what does dopamine want? It wants more dopamine. Right. That's like the notion behind it, I think. When somebody asks me, and this is going to be very uh, relevant to what you just said and for the listeners, like, what do you tell somebody who has never exercised before? Well, I tell them the, to just commit themselves to taking a 10-minute walk mm -hmm. five days a week or something, 10 minutes, five days in a row or something like that, something small. And then after that 10 minutes... I mean, 99% of the time, they're going to feel better than when they started walking, yes. right? They, yes. might, they, they might not have wanted to do it, but afterwards, like, wow, I'm glad I did it. And they do that for five days in a row, and they're feeling better because now you got the dopamine going. And what does the body want? More dopamine. So now they're yeah. going to want more of that activity. So maybe they start walking 
15 minutes, 20 minutes. Sure enough, they're running a mile, a 5K. They want to go in the gym. And then six months go by and you got somebody who's lost 25 pounds, able to run a 5K, able to do a set of 20 pull-ups, a few pull-ups, who couldn't get off the couch months prior. And they look back and like, how did it start? Well, it yeah. started with a 10-minute walk to get my neurotransmitters going, getting the feel-good endorphins, getting the dopamine going and chasing more of that good feeling, building some resilience, building some consistency so that over time, my body is now thriving in a way that's not only in a, in a peak performance. I know you talk about you know optimal performance, like longevity, being consistent. I'm now feeling so much better about yourself. So I want to dive into this notion of optimal performance over peak performance. We hear a lot about peak performance these days. And there's people, in my understanding with peak performance and the way you kind of talk about it is it's the person that they peak and then they disappear. They peak, they disappear. That person that they're, they work out one day and they take three days off. They work out one day, they take three days off. Or maybe it's that person that might have success one day and then they fall off the wagon. It's like very volatile, if you will. It's not sustainable because they're right. just going from extreme one extreme to the next. So talk a bit about the difference between the two, why having optimal performance is like a must for success, managing uncertainty, anxiety, fear, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's this concept that actually when Hubert and I first met, we really kind of congealed on us because we were at a kind of a closed door uh, gathering where we were talking about peak performance for, for some C-suite executives. And, and it was fine and, <laughs> and it was fun, but we really, peak is something that we, I had been asked about a lot. I still am asked about. And if you think about it, a lot of the performance coach at, coaches out there talk about, hey, how do we get to our peak? Everybody wants to get to their peak. But we have to remember that peak is simply an apex. That's what it is. And it's an apex from which we can only come down, okay? Peak has to be prepared for. It has yes. to be planned. It has to be scheduled, okay? The, the professional football player designs his entire week so that he may peak for three hours on Sunday, okay? So, so when people would say to me, well, you SEALs, you guys are the ultimate peak performers. You must know a lot about that. I said, no, we're not the ultimate peak performers. We're not peak performers at all, all right? We are optimal performers. And the difference is optimal performance is how can I do the very best I can in the moment with what I've got? Okay. Sometimes that means it's, sometimes it feels like peak. Sometimes it's flow states and everything's clicking, right? Other times it's like, I'm just going step by step right now. I'm just, I'm dragging through the mud and all I need to do is go forward. Okay. And it's step by step. This is the seal in hell week. This is the cancer patient going through chemo. This is the addict struggling through getting clean, right? Taking those chunks step by step. There is nothing peak about our performance, whether the, the addict, the, the, the train, SEAL trainee, or the cancer patient, there's nothing peak about their performance at that point, right? It is simply them doing the very best they can. And the reason why this really is of vast interest to me uh, is because this is life, right? Yeah. You know, in life, you can't necessarily plan peaks other than if you have to, okay, peak for a presentation or peak for an athletic event, but they're conditional and they're spor sporadic. Other than that, we have to basically move through life doing the best we can. While doing that, if you think about it that way, then you're actually setting yourself up for success because if I choose that doing the best I can at the moment is just taking the next step, I've just given myself a dopamine reward for that. I'm right. setting myself up for consistent rewarding because I'm just doing the best I can. I always joke on the freezing in the surf zone in Hell Week when they keep you in the, in the waves for hours and hours, there was nothing peak about my performance. I was doing the very best I could, which was not to quit. That is optimal performance. And so when we talk about taking control, I want to kind of go back to what something you said about the physical nature of 
of dopamine rewards and, and working out and how important this is the, the reason why I believe the reason why working out is can be such a powerful um, catalyst to other success is because working out you know, taking control of your physical body is something that you can control directly. It's all internal, right? The external world doesn't really have a say in whether or not you can, you can succeed. So you can, you can be very self-disciplined and you can decide and say, I am going to do this for myself and, and step through that every single day. It helps you with long-term discipline, right? I've separated in the book the difference between self-discipline and discipline, right? Self-discipline is more internally focused, it's, it's self. It, what that means is it doesn't require, the external world doesn't have a say in self-discipline, okay? Now, when we talk about discipline, that's when the external world has a say. That's the long-term goal. That's the, hey, I want to get the promotion I'm looking for. I want to make a million dollars. I want to start a business. Well, the external world is going to have a say in that, right? Which means you have to exercise your discipline muscle. You have to exercise this ability to kind of move through effectively the highs and lows. And working out is one of those ways you can do that. I mean, but taking control of your physical body is one of the ways you can begin to control yourself and therefore set yourself up as so that you, as you're going through these external or these longer term goals, you have the chops to be able to do it because you've already proven you can do it yourself. And so it, it's all about setting those rewards and taking control of your control. Sometimes like you talk about when you, you were there in, in jail, all I can do right now is just do some pushups and get in shape. Let me focus right. on that, <laughs> right? There was nothing else you could do. And that worked for you. That became a catalyst for so much other stuff, you know, and I think that's important to remember. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really thankful on when I was in jail is I worked a lot of these non-physical muscles as well. Things like resilience, things like perseverance, things like courage, things like empathy, having empathy for others in there, discipline, mm -hmm. right? That thankfully I built those habits during hard times. I know, I don't know who it was. Don't quote me on this. I don't know if it was Goggins or somebody who talked about doing these things when it's challenging and the benefits of really working on these muscles when things are challenging, because that's when it counts. Like it's easy right. to stay grateful when things are good. It's easy to yes. work out when things are good. It's easy to practice meditation when you're calm. Right. The hard thing and the challenging thing, and I think the, the thing that separates the good from the great are the ones that when they're in the, the midst of adversity and facing some deep, dark stuff, they go back and stay disciplined yeah. to their what li when life works list, like what they yeah. know they need to do. And it's, it's different for everybody. I'm sure there's some variabilities within that, but some sort of physical exercise, some sort of meditation component, spirituality, reading, certain people they lean on, whatever the case may be. Because like you said, like self-discipline doesn't take into account the external, doesn't take into account the adversity. Yeah. So you can lock yourself in your room and keep a gratitude journal, do push-ups, call a friend, listen to, to music, do all that stuff. But if you never leave your house, you don't expose yourself to the world and adversity. And yes. when you hit adversity, that's kind of when it counts. And, and so I want to go back to something that I think we, you talked to, you hit on it, I think briefly, but I wanted to, to kind of touch on it one again, a little bit more in depth, if you will. And that was the importance of recovery. Like, I know you talk about micro recoveries uh -huh. and I know when people think about recovery um they think about well like resting after a workout or maybe getting a massage or rolling out on a foam roller i know you kind of you i think pain if i understand it correctly like recharging your battery creating more energy within yourself yep. so how like when somebody is is really going i don't i don't want to use the word hard but if somebody's like going towards something 
and they maybe need to take a break, recharge themselves. What are some things that you advise people to do? You do yourself to kind of recharge in a way that they're able to recover quickly and efficiently. Yeah, it's a great question. It really, it ultimately comes back down to your sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. And just for, again, we, a quick baseline, your sympathetic system is what fires off when you are in action and you yeah. are, you're, you're engaged. It could be, it could be joyful, but you could be you know, exuberant joy is, is sympathetic, but it also could be stressful and fearful, right? Then you have your parasympathetic designed to actually calm you and restorative. It's a restorative system. Okay, so we can actually shift between our sympathetic and parasympathetic systems easier than we think. And we've talked about a couple ways to do that. The breathing thing I talked about, the CO2 blowout breathing, shifts you from sympathetic to parasympathetic, puts you into recovery mode, as does open gaze visual techniques. It puts you into parasympathetic. So you're, in a sense, recovering. There are a couple more things you can do. The idea is to think about it in terms of, you can gauge it in terms of feeling, okay? If you are feeling peaceful, calm, even happy and joyful, you are creating DHEA in your system and you're recharging, okay? Joy and happiness, even though those are somewhat sympathetic responses, those are, you're shifting your neurobiology and you're creating DHEA. So when you think about different ways to recover, first of all, it's subjective, okay? You, some, some people are, meditation's a great one if you're good at meditating, right? I'm not very good at meditating, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so I don't use meditation. What I do though is I'll go for a run um, in the woods here in Virginia where I live and I won't have any headphones and I won't time myself and I'll just run and I won't, I'll just listen to nature and run. I won't run with anybody else and I will just enjoy the running. And that is deeply restorative to me. So I'm doing the physical activity. I'm not really pushing that hard, but I'm restoring. You could do that. I mean, people do this surfing. They do this going to church. They do this reading a book. They do this hanging with family. So when you think about joy inducing activities in your life, those are restorative activities. Do more of that, whatever that means for you. You can hack into this a little bit if you're in a situation where, where you, you're unable to get away. Okay, micro-recovery is this concept. How can I recover in brief moments, right? If I have like maybe five minutes, okay, in between meetings or something. Breathing is a way, visually, the visual techniques are a way. One of the ways is visualization. Active visualization is a way that you can shift into, into parasympathetic. I used to, my kid, I have two kids, they're, they're teenagers now, but when they were babies, they used to lay on, I, you know, I used to lay on the couch or they used to sleep on my chest. And I remember I, that feeling is just so wonderful when that happens. And I remember I, I, I really am, took in that feeling. And later on, there were times where I, I would be, feel stressful. And I would just close my eyes for a moment and visualize that. And all of those feelings would, would flood my system. I was, in a sense, in essence, recovering. I was, I was, put, I was plugging in my human battery to, to a small degree. And this is what micro-recovery is. Can you find those moments to take some of these techniques, shift your physiology a little bit, and start to recover. You're not going to recover fully, but you're going to give yourself a little bit of a charge, which is which makes sense. And I think that's where we have to start understanding our feelings, our physiology, and start executing on that. That's amazing, man. And the way you just put it, as far as recovering and just simple tactics people can use when they are looking to kind of recharge themselves, kind of get in that Zen uh, Yin flow, if you will, are great. Because I think so many people they correlate recovery or getting into the Zen moment or whatever it is with things like meditation or whatever. And maybe they, maybe they're not good at meditating. You just said that I'm not the best at meditating either. I mean, I, I like to think I will hopefully be good at meditating, but like you, I like to go on run, like long runs and not just for performance purposes, but it's more of like a moving meditation for me to clear my mind, clear my thoughts, talk to myself a little bit. And I'll probably do that after this, just to kind of like recap my day and just take some time off and kind of relax a little bit. And I think people just need to find what works for them. 
yeah. because you can read all the books you want. You can look online to see what works for people, but if you don't figure out what works for yourself and like Rich has talked about being optimal with it, being consistent throughout the week when you're needing to recharge, which hopefully well, I'm assuming will probably be fairly often if you're you yeah. know, somebody who's working hard, right? I mean, it's a normal thing to, to need some time to, to yourself. I mean, that's a normal thing. It you is. Know, we all totally. need it. Yeah. And sleep is the number one way. Yes. Right? You know, if we can get sleep. Another quick hack is music. Yes. How many of us will hear a song and suddenly it completely changes our mood and physiology, right? And so, so we all have these triggers. The idea is to be more proactive in asking better questions about mm. what those triggers are. And then understanding what those triggers are, because you can access those triggers whenever you need to and whenever it's appropriate. And I think music is one, visualization is another, breathing, of course, and, and all that stuff. So it's, we, we have a lot of control. We have a lot more control than we think, which is, which is really quite empowering. It's very empowering. I think the last thing I'll say, I'm going to ask you one more question, is I think the moment when we realize we do have control over our lives to a certain extent, not over everything, we have control over a lot of things mm -hmm. and we have the power to take action on a lot of that. And if we can just take ownership of all that and move in a way that is productive, healthy, and that will kind of move the lever to becoming a better version of ourselves, I think we'll win and not win in some sort of crazy competitive way. What I mean, you'll win and you'll feel good. You'll have yeah. lasting relationships. You'll be successful in your job. You'll be healthy. You'll have, be fulfilled. All these things that we know we all want in life. But it all starts with like literally like, deconstructing the fear like we talked about in this episode and like literally focusing on what you can control, do the things that, you, that work for you to subside the anxious feelings and helping you navigate through these situations mm -hmm. in a way that's positive so you get better at it in the future. So last thing I wanted to ask you is we talked about some of the things, like one of the things you struggled with at the beginning, which was the fear of heights, right? We talked mm -hmm. about that. Yep. What is like maybe like one of the two of the attributes that you're continuing to work on yourself right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, empathy, certainly. Right. I think, and my wife has, I've been married for 20 years and she's one of the most empathetic human beings ever. And so she's over the course of our marriage taught me the power of empathy because it really is very powerful to be able to help. And it, and it shows other people that you care about them when you can feel what they feel and it, it broadens your perspective. So I was, I didn't have a lot of it, which actually probably was advantageous in my line of work for a lot of <laughs> yeah, other reasons. Right. But I, I constantly work on empathy. I would say, what's another one? Gosh, all, all, sometimes it's a little bit tough for me to adapt. I try to adapt. I try to make sure that I'm asking proper questions about the environment as it's changing around me. I've gotten pretty good at it, but I think there's always work to be done. And uh, let's see, if there was one, I, I'll just, we haven't talked about the mental acuity ones. It gets a little bit more in depth, but the learnability attribute that I talk about in mental acuity, I'm sometimes slow to learn things. <laughs> it takes me a while. So I, I, I like to practice learning and absorbing and seeing if I can pick up concepts and techniques and try new things. So I think those are the ones. And then I'm just, I've developed a habit of, of trying to always step outside my comfort zone, which means I've developed a habit of exercising my grit attributes, because I think those are really, really important. So I will look at things, writing a book. I've always loved writing, but writing a book was a challenge that I, I stepped into. Speaking in front of people, that's, I didn't like doing it. I've gotten a lot better at it. That was a, that was a huge step outside of my comfort zone when I, when I retired. As you can imagine, Navy SEALs typically don't have to speak in front of a lot of people. <laughs> so I think for me, it's been the grit attributes and then, yeah, probably empathy and a couple of those other ones. I appreciate you opening up about that. And yeah, I think people, when they think of SEALs, they, they think more about that they're people of action, not necessarily about talking, right? Because they're constantly moving through certain things, certain situations. 
And Rich, I wanted to really thank you, not just for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom, but your humility throughout the episode, as far as, like I said, at the beginning of things that maybe you struggle with, as far as your fear of heights and how you had the courage to turn that around and into being the commanding officer in an elite SEAL team to now inspiring so many people, not just in the, the, the military community, but around what, around the country, right? As far as how they can develop and become an optimal performer in life and how they can navigate through fear in a healthy way, how they can develop these attributes in themselves to live a more prosperous, purposeful, and successful life. So I know the book, you can find it on Amazon, correct? Is there anywhere else that if the listeners want to check you out, learn more about your backstory, maybe some more info about you, is there anywhere else they can go? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Doug. I, I love what you're doing. What you're doing is very powerful and it's helping humanity. And I'm, I'm thrilled to get to be a part of it. So thank you for that. Would love for people to visit theattributes.com and you can learn more about the book. But in, in addition, we're, we've developed an assessment tool where you can, for free, see where you stand on the grid attributes, the drive attributes, and the mental acuity attributes. Now it's going to be compared to about a, a group of about a thousand people. So you'll see where you compare to people, but it gives you kind of a snapshot and you can do that. It's helpful to do that in conjunction with reading the book. And then I'm putting some workbooks on there that you can use to develop attributes. So how do I develop this attribute or that attribute? So if you visit us there, the, the attributes.com, you'll get a bunch of stuff and yeah, enjoy and just see what you can see with yourself and learn about yourself. And I think it's, it's exciting and hopefully it helps a lot of people. Incredible. And I will definitely put the link to the book uh, in the notes so I can let people know where to get it. I read it. I thoroughly enjoyed the read. It really opened up my eyes, like I said, about the difference between skills and attributes. I thought they were pretty intertwined. And as you will learn from you know, even this episode or re reading the book, they're vastly different. And developing these attributes will be the thing that really helps you get through tough times, right? Because we're all right now, many of us you know, are in this, these situations where there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. Yeah. Whether it's pre whether it was before the pandemic, this was going on within us during the pandemic, when we get out of the pandemic, we're going to, people are going to be struggling and yeah. it's on us to really navigate through these times in a way that is conducive to who we want to be in the future. Like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be that person that during adversity, during stressful situations, took that time to feel sorry for yourself, fold and not do the things you should have been doing to get through and build these muscles such as perseverance, resilience, courage, adaptability, mm -hmm. right? And that way you can be more prepared for when life does hit you because life is always going to come mm -hmm. and hit you in unexpected ways. And I encourage people to go out and, and get Rich's book, reach out to him, really take some notes in this episode from his book, Maybe write down an attribute or two that you're going to work on yourself and maybe tag myself, tag Rich, and let us know what you saw the episode. Let us know what you thought of the book and one or two of your biggest takeaways. And we'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your feedback. And I once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. I'll see you next time.